Welcome to MHAI Talks, a program from Mental Health America of Illinois, where we talk all things mental health related like ending stigma, providing care and education, advocacy, hope and change. Today's guest, well, our very first guest, has led in all of those areas. Mark Hireman served for over 40 years as a clinical professor at the University of Chicago Law School. He taught his students to be effective advocates through their supervised litigation on behalf of indigent clients with mental illnesses. They also focused on legislative advocacy on behalf of mental health organizations. Mark and his students drafted and helped to enact more than 100 bills designed to improve mental health services in Illinois. In 1988, he served as executive director of the Governor's Commission to revise the Mental Health Code of Illinois. Today, Mark is of counsel to the Monaghan Law Group, where he continues to work on public policy and legislative advocacy. He serves as member of the Public Policy Committee of Mental Health America. He serves also as board member and chair of the Public Policy Committee of Mental Health America of Illinois. And he serves also as the facilitator of the Mental Health Summit, which is a coalition of mental health service providers and advocates for persons with mental illness across the state. And his list of service goes on and on. Welcome to the show, Mark. I'm happy to be here. Nice to see you. Nice to see you, too. Um, I am a big fan of you and your knowledge and the work that you that you do for us now, but your legacy of work. I think it's just amazing. Um, are you originally from the state of Illinois? Well, not originally. I was born in Wisconsin, but I moved here when I was 11, which was a long time ago. So I've lived almost my entire life in Illinois and really almost my entire life in the city of Chicago. Oh, okay. And in this, on the south side of Chicago is a little school called University of Chicago, where you were, were a professor of law. And so based on what you've seen over the years and what you continue to see, what grade would you give the state of Illinois for how it handles mental health treatment and legislation? I guess I would give it a B minus or maybe a C plus. Um, and, uh, the reason I even give it that high a grade uh, is because I'm grading on the curve as we do at the University of Chicago. <laughs> so it, it's compared to everyone else. And unfortunately, mental health services in the United States um, are not very good, and I, I say that in comparison to how other developed industrial countries treat people with mental health conditions. Um, part, simply part of the problem in our whole country is that uh, we do not take health care seriously, uh, and uh, the reason that mental health services are not so good in the United States is that health care um, falls dramatically below the quality of health care that's provided almost regularly they rank the countries in the world about how they do on mental health and you know on health and mental health and the united states doesn't do very well but in the united states uh, i would say we're a little above average do you and so would should we place more of the blame on our lack of effort to uh, like prevent mental health health conditions and illnesses? Is that where, I guess that's where it starts. Yes, there's lots more that we could do with prevention, including early screening. Um, but also there's, uh, we, we know more and more about how important it is to make sure that 
um, people have are who have mental health conditions are identified early and get treatment early, that can prevent a lifetime of problems. Um, and additionally, we we have not, until relatively re recently, talked about the social determinants uh, or the social drivers of mental health. And so part of the problem mm -hmm. in this country is that we have a lot of uh, negative social conditions that worsen mental health conditions. And we don't pay enough to mm -hmm. those. They worsen all healthcare conditions, but they, you know, so, you know, one of the things, sort of this is a funny thing to say, but COVID um, brought to our attention the extent to which um, I, social isolation for everyone, certainly including children um, who stay mm -hmm. home and um, worsens your mental health condition. Gun violence worsens your mental health condition. And by that, I mean, um, of course, observing people, um, gun violence, which often happens too well, happens too frequently, particularly in less well-off communities. Um, mm -hmm. The fact that we have to do, and I, I understand why we have to do this, gun drills in schools causes a great deal of anxiety for young people. So all of those mm -hmm. things make our health our health care worse and our mental health care worse. And poverty makes mm -hmm. our health care worse. There's overwhelming mm -hmm. evidence that um, being exposed to racist experiences worsens health care for uh, people who are the victims of discrimination. All of those things are important to recognize as social drivers. And it's difficult to be sort of struggling to provide mental health care to people when the environments in which we live, um, they live, we, we all live, are worsening our mental health. Um, environmental mm -hmm. conditions. We have, you know, water pollution and air pollution and anxiety mm -hmm. over climate change and climate change itself. Mm -hmm. all, we, we know those things. There's research that shows that all of these things have a negative impact on our mental health. And saying all that, people sometimes don't want to talk about mental health. After everything's going on that you just mentioned, um, Unfortunately, there is still a stigma, and I I I think it's definitely getting better. Like, may I don't know uh, to what degree, but um, it's uh, it's certainly something that sh we shouldn't avoid talking about. You've worked with so many students through the years and have accomplished so much with them. I'm wondering, do you keep in touch with them a lot now, and or a lot of them? Do they stay in the fight? for mental health improvements? So many of them do. So the problem is there aren't um, opportunities for people um, to make a living doing mental health law. I, I, I feel like I was fortunate to be, as a faculty member, the law school paid my salary and they didn't tell me what to do mm -hmm. much. So I was able to direct <laughs> um, the work of training students to train students working with people with mental health conditions. Um, but, mm -hmm. you know, so some of the Many of the most pressing legal needs for uh, people with mental health conditions are for people who don't have the funds um, to hire private lawyers. So, you know, a number of my students have, would have liked to pursue careers in mental health, but where would they go to do that? So there are some agencies that do this. Um, people who are facing involuntary treatment, involuntary commitment are entitled to a lawyer. Um, and there are state agencies and local agencies that hire them, but these are a small number of people, um, and uh, we need way more. So 
many places. Mm-hmm. That, you know, we have a state agency that does this. Many of many parts of the state are not covered by that state agency. Mm-hmm. So what we need um, is funding to hire mental health lawyers for the people who need mental health law. You know, and it's it's my my next question would be was going to be a labor shortage. We know we're seeing that in pretty much every sector of society. I was going to ask you if you think that we're keeping up with the legal needs for um, like mental health matters, but you know, I, I think about it and students, and I, I'm sure you know it too, but people going into law school today have to look at the cost of going to law school today. And if there are limited opportunities for them to practice their if, if they have a passion for mental health but if there are limited places for them to practice and probably places that don't pay the amounts that private uh, firms would pay that, that, is that that's what do we do <laughs> that's certainly true mariah um so you know one of the things i'm proud of is that many of my students who've got off to work in large law firms where they, they make a lot of money uh, do mental health advocacy pro bono and um Lawyers, in my view, are ethically required to do pro bono work. Um, they're not mm-hmm. legally required, but they're ethic- ethically required. And, uh, of course, I'm happy when any of my former students uh, devote a substantial amount of their time to uh, pro bono work, particularly in our field, and, and I'm proud to say that many of them do. Um, but, it, in fact, you know, the number of people who are not employed by the government, but are in private practice of the law who do any kind of mental health work is exceedingly small. Um, there are just mm-hmm. two or three law firms in, and there's tiny law firms in, in the whole state of Illinois that engage in mental health uh, work and can make a living doing that. Uh, I'm glad that mm-hmm. they are making a living, but um, this is a tiny number of lawyers um, because the people who need, who have the most need can't afford to hire a lawyer. Um, and the lawyers, of course, have to make a living, and if they're not paid by anyone, they, um, they will go broke. Um, <laughs> so we, if we're going to increase the supply of mental health lawyers for the people who need them, and I, I strongly think we should, we're going to have to have public funding for that. Well, let's hope it, that the work that organizations like Mental Health America of Illinois and other organizations, hopefully we can advocate for more. We certainly need the, these services. I want to talk about some uh, a service that's been talked about for I don't know how many decades, but it came into fruition last year, and that's 988. 988 is one of the biggest accomplishments for mental health, mental health safety, um, the American people. It's a big win for all of us. Mental Health America, along with other organizations like NAVI and local organizations, have lobbied and educated and fought for this for years. Can you, you know, I, I'm, su- I'm, I'm, I'm surprised, but not surprised by the number of people that I encounter just out in the community. Some, I even had a few over the summer, I had a conversation with even some police officers who were not familiar with 988. Can you address uh, what 988 is and how impactful this service will prove to be for our emergency response services? Well, I agree with Mariah. This, with you, Mariah, this is a wonderful new program that's uh, long overdue. Um, basically, it came from a federal government mandate 
that created a, a new telephone number um, to call when for mental health emergencies. Um, that's the, the number is 988. Um, don't ever forget that number. It's really important. And so it replaced a, a traditional 10-digit number that was really used exclusively for suicide prevention, which was a good number, but it was uh, it was not adequately staffed, particularly in Illinois. Illinois was ranked last among the states uh, in the number of those calls that were answered locally. So the way these numbers work and the way 988 now works is it has three different pieces. Um, it will take a while until all three pieces are in place, but the most important first piece is that there's a number to call. And if you call 988 now, um, in Illinois or anywhere in the country, someone will answer the phone and um, will, if you have um, suicidal thoughts or you have other emergency or, or needs for mental health care, they will talk to you. Overwhelmingly, um, because we have good trained people answering this phone call, most of the phone calls result in um, the person having their needs met on the telephone by someone who is a trained to talk to persons who are feeling um, desperate because of their mental health condition. But 988 is, does other things as well. So um, it is a number that you can call if you're a family member or a friend of someone who has a mental health condition, and you can um, ask for them to have help. And it's designed to, to do a number of things. One is, if this is truly emergency, emergency then we need to have someone to send. That's the second prong. So a number to call, a person to send. Uh, we're still working on the person to send, as is the rest of the country. Uh, and we don't always have the right person to send. We'll talk more about that. And then the third, um, that is we need to be able to send someone who is trained and knowledgeable and can really help you if you need help. And the third thing that it will, will ultimately be done, and we're doing some of it in Illinois, but not enough, is a place to go. Um, so unfortunately, um, the people who answer the 988 number, or generally if you need mental health services, you are faced with two choices. Either you don't get help sometimes uh, when you need it, or you are faced with either being taken into, the mental, into an inpatient psychiatric center or sometimes even into the criminal justice system. Um, and uh, usually mo neither of those is a good answer for someone with a serious mental illness. Um, lots of people are in mental health crisis but don't need to be in a psychiatric hospital. So one of the things that we have discovered is that we can create models in which we have places to go that are much more like um, a, a friendly place where there are people available that are much more like your house. So this is often called mm -hmm. to called as the living room model. Living. Um, you will go to a place where there'll be trained mental health professionals Often there will also be people who are so-called peers, that is people who have mental health conditions and are trained to talk with to other people who um, have mental health conditions. And often that's all someone needs is to be in this place um, for a short period of time, maybe a day or two at, at most, uh, so that their mental health crisis passes. Um, and so we're still working on these things, um, the funding for the second two parts, the person to send and a place to go. But we are very successful at the number one thing, which is to have a number to call, which will be answered by someone who knows what she or he is doing and can be helpful to you. And I've forgotten 
I've forgotten the the data on this, but I know that um, I guess with within the last year, our in-state response time right. has improved dramatically. Dramatically. So right. we, we were the worst. Um, 90% of our calls were being answered out of state, which is really horrible if you need further services. So if your call is being answered in Montana, they don't know where to send you in Illinois. So the way that the system used to work and still does work is um, if the not, your phone call isn't answered by the closest person within a certain number of rings, it automatically rolls over to the next closest organization and the next. And 90% of these calls were being answered out of state um, before the new 988 system. Now, almost 90%, 88% are being answered in state in Illinois by someone who, if you do need more services, can say to you where you can get them and can maybe send someone to help you if that's needed. So we And that's a result of, I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, we've improved dramatically. And so the, the nice thing, this wasn't just a federal mandate that we had to create 988. Um, but the federal government sent a lot of money to the states to get us started. And now it's the mm -hmm. job of Illinois and every other state to identify permanent funding sources um, to make sure that not only the 988 system, a phone number or a number to call, continues to work appropriately, but also that the other two pieces are in place. And that really, when that's fully in place, and it will take a little while, when it's fully in place, that really would be a game changer in terms of keeping people out of hospitals, helping them to survive difficult um, service, uh, situations that probably don't require hospitalization, and also keeping people out of the criminal justice system, which is the worst place for people with mental illnesses to go. Absolutely. Um, I, re I recall, I believe it was last year, the years blurred together, but we had a Mental Health America of Illinois, MHAI, we um, hosted the, the event with uh, Sheriff Dart, and uh, you did such a great job having that, leading that discussion with him, and that was one of the things he said. For listeners that aren't aware, when people are in mental health crisis, they often end up in, in our jails, like Mark alluded to, and that is not, that's, today it's one of our biggest mental health treatment centers, our jails, and that is not ideal for our society. Yeah. Um, we, we can do better. We can do better. We need to do better. Along with 988, which is certainly a win from last year, I wanted to also address CESA laws. Um, CESA is an acronym for our listeners, and I just lost with it's it's that's a you know <laughs> it's, yes it's it's hard to remember these acronyms um it stands for community emergency support and services act um and i agree with you that cessa is also a very important thing and it needs to work in tandem with 988 so as i said if you call 988 we have this these three things that will can happen mm -hmm. um but cessa is designed to deal to help when there's a mental health problem that results in a call to 911. So lots of times people will continue to call 911. Um, part of what we're trying to do is make sure that the 911 operators know about 988 and can easily send mm -hmm. calls that they think are appropriate to 988 and vice versa. 
Mm -hmm. um, but some people mm -hmm. will need to uh, will continue to call 911 uh, with some kind of mental health emergency. And SESA is about dispatch. That is, when you call 911, um, the 911 operator thinks that you need someone sent to help you, to take care of you, or perhaps even to arrest you um, if there's a crime. Um, so people can call 911 when they think someone else is uh, threatening them, perhaps with a weapon. Uh, and mm -hmm. that person might be a person with a mental health condition. Um, so if you call 911 uh, under CESA, there has to be an, ass an assessment of whether um, they can send someone other than the police um, to assist you. Um, and it mandates that they do that um, if um, that's appropriate. And there are, of course, elaborate guidelines about what kinds of things will require that the police be sent. Obviously, um, if you have a weapon, they're going to send the police. Um, but uh, often, if you call 911, they don't need to send the police. And it's important. So, for example, suppose you really are in an emergency and it's fairly clear that you need to be taken um, to a psychiatric hospital. Um, what has been the, the practice in every state, and certainly including Illinois, is that we will send the police to take you um, to a psychiatric hospital. Uh, and often when that's not necessary. Uh, and again, sometimes it is necessary, but when it's not necessary, you see, sending the police has lots of negative consequences. First of all, it's stigmatizing to you um, to see the police come up um, and, and treat you as if you're being arrested when you're just getting health care. If I'm having a heart attack, they don't send the police to take me in the back of the car um, uh, to a hospital. Um, they send an ambulance and that, and the, and the ambulance takes me in. Um, and so there's no reason to treat people with mental illnesses differently. And typically, the police also will handcuff you, which is often unnecessary. Um, if you do need to be restrained, and sometimes you do, um, you know, if a mental health professional comes out, they will use regular soft restraints uh, if that's necessary. And again, it's less traumatizing to you and to the extent to which people are observing you being taken away. Um, it's quite different to be taken away in the back of a police car um, in handcuffs than being taken in an ambulance or in someone's car um, to a hospital and not in, not in handcuffs, but perhaps in restraints or perhaps not at all. So CESA mm -hmm. isn't completely effective yet, so we're creating systems across the state to make sure that we have these non-police responders. They're not fully in place yet. Um, so really, it's probably going to take effect fully in 2024, not this year. We look forward to that. The legislators also passed some new laws around guardianship, some minor laws and other things. But I wanted to talk about guardianship in general. Here at MHAI, we frequently receive calls from concerned parents or other family members regarding uh, their adult child's mental health and well-being. The term guardianship comes up. I, you know, I'm taking those calls. That term, it has some positive and some negative connotations. How, as mental health advocates, really walk this balance for a 
around this issue of guardianship because it can be a tool for families to protect their loved ones. So I, it's, it's, a, it's a fine balance between promoting smart, effective laws around guardianship, but also ensuring a person's civil liberties aren't violated. How I know that you know a lot about guardianship. What is your opinion on that? So um, we have drafted our guardianship laws and our mental health laws so that uh, we have other mental health laws that can be used to um, deliver treatment to people even when they're unable to consent to it or resist it. The guardianship laws in Illinois can be helpful in for mental health conditions, um, but um, they're, they're helpful in a limited number of ways. So for example, a guardian cannot admit you to a psychiatric hospital uh, against your will. Um, that requires a commitment under the commitment laws and you have to meet the standard and you're entitled to a full judicial hearing, et cetera, and a lawyer and an independent examination, a variety of other procedural protections. We have not given to guardians the authority to admit you to a psychiatric hospital, nor have we given them the authority to consent to psychotropic medication or electroconvulsive therapy over your objection. That, again, can be done under the mental health code. Nevertheless, guardian, getting guardianship over someone with a serious um, mental health condition can be a helpful way for a loved one or someone who cares about me to make decisions for me when I lack decisional capacity. So to have a guardian appointed for me, uh, someone who petitions to have that guardian has to convince the court um, that I lack decisional capacity. Um, that is, I can't make decisions about the important matters in my life. Um, as a matter of law, um, our statute is pretty protective. It, it prefers limited guardianship. So if there are some things that I can't make decisions over, a guardian can be appointed to just make decisions in that area, not everything else. Here are some ways in which a guardian can be helpful for loved ones of someone with a mental health condition. One, a guardian will usually be allowed to consent to all other health care, not, not inpatient psychiatric care and not involuntary medication treatment, but other kinds of health care. And of course, people with mental health conditions uh, are not immune from other health problems. So that's often helpful. And often their mental health condition may interfere with their ability to consent to treatment for other things that they may have, um, hypertension and the medication for it or diabetes or anything else chronic or uh, temporary conditions. And secondly, it gives act, the guardian access to all of your health care records, including your mental health care records. So the guardian can help can be helpful in participating in your care um, because the guardian will know what care is being provided for you. Uh, will know, for example, if you're being discharged from the hospital, the guardian uh, will have will get notice of that when if you're not a guardian, you wouldn't get that notice. Um, so that's the way in which um, being a guardian can be helpful and it, it can consent to other kinds of treatments uh, for people with mental health conditions. I wanted to shift now to something else that happened um, over the summer. Over the summer, Governor Pritzker signed into law what's known as the Wellness Act. Um, I recall through, through your leadership with the Mental Health Summit, I recall the, the, the summit discussing House Bill 2827 and expressing support for that. 
Uh, this Wellness Act ensures that patients have a right to an annual mental health exam, just like a physical one. So this is a win for parity. Parity is another one of those one of those um, decades long conversations that's been going on. So this is a win. So, in your opinion, if we if we think of this gargantuan effort as a mountain, parity, parity mountain, we'll call it. We've been climbing this for a while. So in your opinion, and as you look over this landscape of mental health change and, and mental health legislation, where are we on that huge parity mountain? Are we at the top yet? Or are we over it? So we're, we're, we're still climbing, but we've made tremendous progress. Ah. Uh, we're, we're, we're nearing, we're nearing the summit. Um, we have plenty of work to do. So, uh, some, so what's the good news over the many decades of this fight? So first th there's been a series of federal parity laws, including you know, one of the most important things in the affordable care act is that it included parity. So, um, among the essential health benefits that health insurance companies are required to provide is treatment for mental health conditions and substance use conditions. So, but the federal Affordable Care Act and the federal parity laws don't cover all uh, insurance. And so in Illinois, over many decades, we started out with one of the weakest parity laws. I think it's fair to say that in Illinois, we now have the best parity law among the 50 states. These are the good news. And of course, mental health advocates fought for this. Uh, quite a few organizations have come together to support this, um, and Mental Health America, which was got the very first parity law passed in Illinois, uh, has been helpful with working with the other groups to do this. Um, the Kennedy Forum of Illinois has been doing this, NAMI, but um, the Mental Health Summit, which we've found, helped found, and Mental Health America have also been. This is a, a key issue for us. Here are the here's the big remaining problem: enforcement. Um, so for, it's still true that insurance companies don't, um, completely comply. And one of the ways they don't comply is simply that they don't have networks that are adequate. So it's one thing to, for an insurance company to say, well, yes, we cover mental health treatment. Um, if you, you can go to any of the psychiatrists in our network or the psych, a psychologist, and then you find that none of the psychiatrists or psychologists in your network have an appointment available for the next 90 days or even longer, or perhaps you need to drive 100 miles um, to get to the nearest mental health professional who has an opening for you. So that's not parity. Uh, and so we have slowly been working on amendments to our insurance code um, to make sure that we have true parity uh, in our mental health system that is not just the law up here, but also the enforcement on the ground um, so that when people actually need to get the services, they can find a service that's covered by their health insurance. Um, and so that's um, still going to continue to be a long, a long uphill climb. <laughs> up, up, going up Parity Mountain. We talked about me the Mental Health Summit, which you've led for, for several years. What what over the last year, what in to you, what is your when you look at all the legislation, what has had your biggest support? Well, I'll say two things. One, I'll just go back to nine eight eight. 
Um, so as I said, the federal government, you know, got us started down this road and gave us a lot of money to help start it as part of the um, COVID re uh, reaction and the Inflation Reduction Act. So um, that's been very helpful. But um, in the long term, to fund all of the necessary elements, state funding is necessary. And two bills were passed to create a process for figuring out exactly how much money we need, how that money will be spent, and where the heck that money is going to come from. So a couple of the states are ahead of us. Some of the states are ahead of us. Many of us are, many states are just where we are, which is figuring out where this money is going to come from. So the states that have done this so far, I think overwhelmingly have said, this should be a, a telephone tax to support 988. Um, a telephone tax supports 911, of course. Um, and so that's a good thing. As you can imagine, um, that, that is, this is a cell phone tax because those are the only phones people use anymore. Um, as you can imagine, the phone companies aren't necessarily thrilled about having a tax on their product, which um, they have to collect and give to the government. But um, that that's the most promising thing. There are other, way, other kinds of uh, ways we can identify revenue. And, and we've succeeded in passing these two bills um, that are creating that process. So I suspect in 2024, we will finally have this nailed down. And then the other thing that really MHAI took the lead in is trying to figure out how to use our state hospitals. So last year, we passed a bill that required the state to rethink its um, state psychiatric hospital beds. Um, and I'll just give a brief summary of this. We we used to have 33,000 state psychiatric hospital beds, and now we have 1,200. So we've lost 95% of our state psychiatric hospital beds. In this regard, Illinois is no different than the other 49 states. They've all done this. Uh, when you're at 33,000 beds, you could perhaps waste them. I'm not saying we did. But when you only have 1,200, we need to make sure that they're used most effectively. And I think most people agree about what that is in principle, which is to say that the people who are most at risk, uh, if they're not in a hospital, should be in the hospital, most, most at risk of hurting themselves, of hurting someone else, or being unable to care for themselves. So, you know, you can be in a hospital if it's it gets cold in Chicago in the winter, and if you're homeless and you're not in a position due to your mental illness to make sure you don't get frostbite and lose a, a toe or even die of hypothermia, uh, you may need to be in a hospital. Um, and so if you can't take care of your basic needs, you should be in a hospital. So we should make sure that the people who are most at risk of coming to harm or harming others are in the hospital. We don't do that. We keep some people for a lengthy periods of time uh, when they are long recovered. And so we pass this bill and the state has is in the process of implementing this, is thinking about how to make sure that we get the less sick people out of hospitals and the most sick people in where sick is, as I defined it, people who are most at risk of coming to harm. Excellent. We've covered a lot. We started with a pretty, pretty honest but harsh grade for the state. <laughs> but um, but you've, you've been good about pointing out some wins that we've had yes. uh, as, along the way as well. And I think we're, when we talk about the, oh, sorry. I just want to say we are, we are lucky. Um, and one of the reasons we've made the progress we've made in the last few years, we have a governor who's committed um, to improving mental health services. And we, mm -hmm. for the first time in the last several years, we have a dedicated committee in both the Illinois House and the Illinois Senate made up of Republicans and Democrats 
who are committed to improving the mental health system. So the only people who are on these two committees, the House and the Senate Committee, are people who care about improving the mental health system. And we have dedicated people on both of those committees. And so there are people, many of them come to the committee knowing a lot about mental health. And so there are, these are places you can go and say, here's the problem. And they know, they, they know a lot and they care a lot and they're willing to listen uh, about how to solve problems. So that's a, an optimistic thing for the future and it, it accounts for the success we've had so far in recent years. And and you you said it like they care a lot about this topic. I I think we all should care about this topic. It's something that touches us personally or someone in our family. You don't have to toss the stone very far uh, to to be touched by this uh, topic. We are coming up on another election year, uh, and I know that um, there are are many voters in the state who will show up, and there are many people who have the potential to be a voter who haven't done what they need to do to get registered or to stay informed of, uh, of the issues. You've already sort of referenced why, you know, actions matter, why this work matters. Is there something if you had to, if, if all of the um, eligible voters of Illinois were in your classroom right now, what would you say to them about why advocacy matters and what kind of impact they as voters can have on the mental health of our state. So one of the other reasons that we're doing better is that people have paid a lot more attention to this, again, because we've had su such a crisis due to COVID. Um, the problem, uh, as you mentioned, Mariah, a little while back, is stigma often prevents people from wanting to talk about the fact that even that they have a relative with a mental health condition. And if you don't have a friend or a relative with a mental health condition, you're not looking carefully. Um, we all we all have friends and relatives, and we may ourselves have some mental health issues. Uh, and so it is does matter to all of us. You should be asking your legislators what they intend to do about this. And it's not just legislators. So one of the important gatekeepers of, um, to make sure that people get mental health services are your local state's attorneys. Um, every county has a state's attorney, um, and the, it's the state's attorney who is responsible for um, deciding how much resources should be devoted to making sure that uh, we use commitment laws instead of the criminal laws. So there actually are some counties where state's attorneys won't do any commitments, um, and we should be calling them to account saying, you know, uh, yes, as you mentioned earlier, Ryan, uh, no one wants to take away someone's individual liberty unless they absolutely have to. But it's if you can, if putting someone in a psychiatric hospital, even against her or his will, will keep them out of jail or prison, um, we're they're better off because mental health services and prisons and jails are horrible and their people are at risk. And, and we're better off because we're not wasting our money on something that won't be helpful to us or to them. So you should be say, you should be saying not. You should be talking to your legislators about this. And legislators, listen, when no one was talking, legislators thought this wasn't a big problem. And now they know it's a big problem and they're listening. They're ready to hear you. We need to keep talking. You mentioned Governor Prisker's work and he is, um, I know that he, he himself is someone like many of us whose family has been touched by um, a mental health condition. Um, and you, you, applauded his work and efforts recently. Is there, are there any other 
I know it, it's dangerous to start naming names because you can't, you don't want to leave anybody out. But is there any, are there any legislators within the state who you would like to recognize for their well, I, and their I, lead, leadership? I'm reluctant to do that because there are so many. And I don't <laughs> want to leave people out. I mean, uh, you know, we have the the chairs of and and the minority representative leadership of both of these two legislative committees are wonderful, um, and. Um, they should be applauded at basically all the members, but there are quite a few members of the legislature who have uh, cared about these things. Uh, and we have mayors across the state who have done this. Um, the new mayor of Chicago cares a lot about mental health. Uh, mayor of Evanston, I know, has been active in improving mental health in that city. And again, I'm not going to name their names because we have... Um, <laughs> hundreds of mayors across the entire state and then um, county supervisors and there are state's attorneys that are have been dedicated to improving this mental health services so um, I don't want to name any of them um, because that might and and that might be the political score yeah I mean and, and the and it's important to recognize that this is a bipartisan issue and so there are mm -hmm. lots of Democrats and Republicans who've done this principal congressperson who got the 988 number passed in, in in Washington is a conservative Republican from Utah. Um, and I won't name him either. Um, <laughs> although I w had the pleasure of meeting and talking with him. He's a very smart guy. And he, you know, he just discovered this problem and, and ran with it um, and convinced uh, Washington to create this new system. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a. This is a um, a challenge that affects us regardless of our party affiliation or area of life. And I, I love that the solution is bipartisan and on every coming from every level of our government as well. The future of Illinois, Mark. Uh, what's your vision for Illinois and mental health and the mental health of, the, of our citizens? Well, I think the the important thing is that we fo we, we focus on prevention, yes, um, but also we should be focusing on the thi the the things that are worst, and the worst things are the large number of people with mental illnesses in the criminal justice system, uh, and those are th problems that we can solve. Uh, again, I will, without naming names, I will point out that uh, and this is true for a number of states. Uh, our Illinois Supreme Court has appointed a special committee of judges um, just to look at um, people with mental health, mental health conditions in the court system, including the criminal justice system, and figuring out how to make our mental health commitment system work better. Um, and that committee has been doing wonderful work um, and has been doing training for judges and lawyers about how to deal with persons with mental health systems symptoms if they come into the court system. Um, and, and again, so I think we're likely to see some continued dramatic improvements. Let's get mentally ill people out of the criminal justice system. Let's make sure we treat people early and in the least restrictive environment. The living room model, not psychiatric hospitals, not jails and prisons. Um, we're moving in the right direction. And I'm optimistic. We just we need the money and the will and the urgency to say, this isn't something that can wait. Um, and again, going back to prevention, 
Uh, we need dramatically more mental health resources in schools. Um, and uh, I think everyone knows that. And then I will just put in a plug for a resource that Mental Health America of Illinois and our national has done, which is to create a, um, a database of uh, unmet mental health needs. Uh, if you go on Mental Health America's website, you will see a link uh, and you can look at uh, by zip code um, people who have screened positive for mental health conditions um, in each uh, zip code in Cook County and in each each county in Illinois. And you can see this is overwhelmingly people who have screened positive for mental health conditions and overwhelmingly it's people who have not had any services and overwhelmingly it's young people who have screened positive and need help. Um, and you you can look and see in your community what's the largest unmet need. Is it depression, anxiety, PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, etc. So um, I urge people to go on our website and look at that. You can also go on our website and there's a link to take a screen yourself. Um, we, we screen for 11 mental health conditions. It's free, it's evidence-based, and it's anonymous. So um, if you go on there and screen, we will send you to some resources. Uh, if you screen positive, there's a screen there that um, if a parent can take if they think that they have a mentally ill child um, who, uh, or that might be at risk that can help you identify whether in fact that's true. Um, two of the screens are in Spanish. We hope to have all of them in Spanish because of course there are a lot of Spanish speaking people in the country and of course here in, in Illinois. Uh, we need to make this accessible to everyone. Wonderful. All of this information is so needed. And I thank you, Professor, <laughs> for sharing it with us. And I, I will make those uh, links available in the show notes for, for listeners. Thank you, listeners. Thank you, Mark, for so much. And I, I feel pretty certain in saying we're going to have you back. <laughs> um, on in on many episodes in the future for those of you that are listening thank you very much for joining us uh do visit our website at mhai.org to find some of those resources that mark was just referencing and to learn more about the work that we are doing to serve the state of illinois sign on the website you can also sign up for our newsletter so you can stay up to date with events um follow you can follow us on facebook